want to thank all of you for having me here tonight. It's, um, you know, Dave called me or texted me actually from China two weeks ago and asked me to do this, and I just um, and I told him I was was really honored uh, to stand up here and 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 share God's word with with all of you and and with this church. Um, most of you probably don't know this, but I was actually adopted twice. Um, once at nine years old and, and once actually at 24 as an adult by my natural-born grandparents, which is a whole long story, which maybe one day I'll share with all of you. But um, I wonder how many of you know that when an adoption takes place, the judge asks some very pointed questions to the adopting parents um, concerning rights of inheritance. The judge will ask the adopting parents if they are aware that by adopting this person or this child, that that means that all rights of inheritance are afforded to this person or child as if they were their natural-born children, and that in the eyes of the law, there is no difference whatsoever between a naturally-born child and an adopted child. So, as we get into our text tonight, we're actually in the climax of the gospel. Um, the notion that we're children of God. And His own Son is the mainspring of our Christian living. So, our sonship in God is the apex and the goal of redemption. So tonight we're going to be in uh, we're going to be in Galatians uh, chapter three. We're going to start at verse twenty-six, and we're going to end up in uh, chapter four, verse seven. Jonathan Edwards once wrote that it is the evidence by which they are known to be God's children. They have the image of their father stamped upon their hearts by the Spirit. Of adoption. And if we want to understand who a Christian is and why being a Christian is a privilege, we really need to appreciate what adoption means. So if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians 3, we'll start at verse 26 and end at uh, chapter 4, verse 7. For in Christ Jesus you are sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under the guardians and managers until the date set by the Father. In the same way, we, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption 
as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir to God. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. Sons of God, the heart of the Christian life. You know, in verse 26, if we look at the background of this letter, what was going on here when Paul wrote this, the work in Galatia had been extremely successful. And many of the people, uh, mostly Gentiles, uh, had accepted Christ. And sometime after Paul left Galatia, certain Jewish teachers that are referred to as Judaizers came along insisting that the Gentiles couldn't be true Christians without accepting the laws of Moses. And that the Galatians wanting to do everything that was required of them to be accepted took in this teaching and they were, there was actually what we could consider an epidemic of circumcision going on uh, amongst the Gentile Christians. And when Paul heard this was happening, he wrote this letter to explain to them that circumcision was not necessary and it had nothing to do with their salvation. And so Paul works his way through this letter and and he's telling us exactly what it means to become a child of God. So in verse 26, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Some of our translations um, in this verse will translate this, are all children of God, as was done in the NIV, but, but that doesn't actually truly capture what Paul is saying here, because they would miss what Paul is actually saying. And see, in the ancient culture at the times this letter was written, daughters could not inherit property. And so son as Paul uses it here, meant legal heir. And this status was actually forbidden of women in those times. So the term son that Paul is using here is a legal term to describe what is afforded to us as God's children. We are all his heirs. And the Bible describes all Christians together, including men, as the bride of Christ. So men are part of the son's bride, and women are his sons or his heirs in the context of how Paul is using this term here. And some might think that fatherhood of God is universal, that every man is a son, from the fact that we're all created in God's image. And that would mean that all of creation is is his son's. But we must note that there's nothing in creation that implies fatherhood. God has made many things that are not his children. He's made the heavens and the earth, the sea full of creatures, the animals that are on the land, the birds in the air. None of these are his children. And you might say, well, Those aren't intelligent beings, but he made the angels. 
and they stand in a high holy position. And we must ask ourselves, are they his children? So if we look back to the book of Hebrews for a minute, and we'll start with uh, Hebrews 1 verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son today and I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be my son. And then in, this, for, in verse 6, and again when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In verse 8, but of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, the scepter of up, uprighteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. And then he closed down further in verse 13, directly concerning angels, he writes, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? You see, we don't see angels called children of God. Mere creation does not bring us or one into relationship with God as a father. But the last part of verse 26 tells us what does. Our sonship comes to us through faith. In verse 27, we, we see that we are clothed with Christ. God's Word reads, For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. And Paul is using this term, baptized, here as shorthand for conversion. Remember, he's talking to uh, the church of Galatia, and nobody in there has, gives evidence of their inner public faith through baptism unless they were a believer. So only Christians there were actually baptized. And so he knows he's talking directly to believers. And he's saying that, he's not saying that you must be baptized. What he's saying is he's telling the believers that they are clothed with Christ. And that this clothing is one of Paul's favorite images as a metaphor. We see this, that Paul used the same imagery in Romans chapter 3. In Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 as well, where he likens himself or Christ as a garment. And right away, there are four things that we can draw out from this segment of have put on Christ. And the first is, is that our clothing tells people who we are. And it's not every kind of clothing as, say, a uniform, but often clothing can identify someone as their gender, their social class, or even their national group. But our ultimate identity is in Christ. And next, it's our closeness of our relationship with Christ. If you think about, our, think about it, our clothes go everywhere with us. So to say Christ is our clothing is to say we have a moment-by-moment -moment dependence and awareness of Him, being clothed in Him. And next we see the imitation of Christ. See, we walk before him and we take Jesus into every aspect of our lives. We are to put on his virtues and actions. Or to put it another way, 
We're to dress up like Jesus. And then lastly, we see it's our acceptability to God. See, it covers our nakedness. God from, has been providing clothing which covered our shames ever since the fall. And Christ is our clothing now. And God looks at us and He sees us as His sons because He sees His Son. Verse 27 is a very comprehensive metaphor of this whole new life. We think of Christ constantly, His Spirit, His character. It infuses and permeates every part of us. And this goes far beyond the keeping of the rules and the regulations that were required under the laws of Moses. This is to be in love with Him, to be bathed in Him, to be awashed in Him. A Christian can never need some additional commitment to the law of Moses in order to receive or maintain full acceptance by God because we're clothed with Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus has given us His righteousness and His perfection to wear. Verse 28 tells us we are one in Christ. God's Word reads, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, verse 26 reveals this amazing intimacy that exists between Christians and the Creator God, our Father. And verse 27 outlines the closeness between Christians and God, the Son, our Savior. And then verse 28 comes out of these two verses, and it shows us the unity between Christians. See, there's no division, there is no different among us. There aren't different races, social statuses, or genders. It does not say that there are no longer any distinctions inside the church, but we know that from Paul's teachings back in Ephesians 5 and 6 where he writes about the individual roles of wives and husbands or of children and parents. And even as slaves and their masters, as further touched on in Colossians in, in chapter 3, and he writes of the rules of Christian households, this shows us in this verse is not obliterating the distinctive duties or practices of different cultures, classes, or genders. We are not all identical or interchangeable, but we are all one. We're the body of Christ. See, the gospel does have some radical social implications, and perhaps even more so then than in American culture today. We are very ethnically diverse in most parts of this country. But one thing is for certain that Paul is telling us that we are Christians before we're anything else. And all the barriers that separate and divide people come down in Jesus Christ. The cultural barrier, neither Jew nor Greek. The class barrier, neither slave nor free. 
And then the gender barrier, neither male nor female. You know, I think at this point, we should ask ourselves, as Paul's implication against neither slave nor free was a call to the abolition of slavery, but if it was, then why does he tell slaves to be diligent in their work in Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3? We must notice here that the thesis of Galatians 3 is that there's this radical equality for all those that are in Christ. He does not address the broader society as a whole, but one thing is clear is that Christians living within society would have an impact on that society in the years to come. Paul is, I think, beginning to build on something here for Christian families. You know, it was common practice in most ancient societies that the eldest son inherited virtually the entire family estate. But notice here in our text that Paul tells every Christian, man or woman, that he or she is equally God's heir. And think about that for a minute. That means that they're an heir to all Jesus is heir to. The thinking within Christian families and their understanding of this truth that Paul is teaching was bound to have an effect on, on the world and how Christians lived out in society as a large in the years to come. But this kind of social change was not Paul's immediate concern in his teaching. He is telling us that the gospel brings down all barriers within the Christian community. See, only the truths that we see in verses 25 or 26 and 27 can lead us to this kind of unity. With the privileges we get in the gospel of sonship, all because of the union we have with Christ, how could we ever look down upon another brother or sister that is clothed with our Savior? As recipients of grace, we know that our blessings come unearned, so our pride and our race and our social status or even our gender gets removed. We are all sinners, each and every one of us. There is never a reason to think of ourselves as better than anyone else. We are all sinners and we've all been adopted by grace through our faith. And then if we move into verse 29, we see that we're all heirs through Christ. Look at what we find out about all of this, that it's through our faith, right? So verse 26 tells us we are sons of the Creator. Verse 28 tells us that we are united with every other Christian that we're one in Christ regardless of anything that the world suggests that should divide us. And then finally, verse 29 tells us, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You know, we look back in history, by clothing ourselves with Christ through faith, you are Abraham's offspring. 
your heirs according to the promise. And all that God promised Abraham, he has fulfilled and will fulfill in his son Jesus, so that God promised we will enjoy everything that he promised because we're adopted as his sons. We have been taken out of the sin family of which we were born, and Christ has washed us and cleansed us and given us a new spirit and made us heirs of God. We're joint heirs with Christ as adopted sons of God the Father. Obtaining all the legal rights of inheritance, just as I did when I was adopted by my maternal grandparents. See, these great truths that we just covered take us a lifetime to fully appreciate. And we have eternity to enjoy them. That's the good news. So Paul pauses here in the the first part of chapter 4, and he's going to help us to further understand what it means to be adopted by God. In chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, we see this coming of age. God's Word reads, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the Father. In ancient times, this process of coming of age was an important and, and well-defined process. Um, to illustrate our sonship, Paul uses this example of a young child who was an heir to a great estate. And when he was a minor, he was no different than any slave that was owned by the estate. But when he comes of age, he comes into his full inheritance. And so Paul paints this picture for us here that we have this young boy, seemingly wealthy, and the young boy is the legal heir and the future master of this entire estate. But as long as he's a child, he's just like that of a slave. He's completely under the control of the guardians and the trustees. So... We can see that they supervise him, they discipline him, they control him. And he's under their authority until when? Until the date set by the Father. At which point he will be free from the guardians and the trustees and their control, and he enjoys the full rights of heir and a master, and as master of this family estate. So Paul has put together this big illustration to describe what life is like under the supervision of the law. But notice here that he's liking it to slavery. See, why did Paul use slavery as this illustration of what life was like before Christ? Weren't the Jews redeemed from slavery way back in Exodus? And if God had redeemed his people from slavery, how could their whole existence be under the Mosaic law be considered slavery until 
Christ then depicted in terms of slavery. Sure, it would be appropriate to view the Gentiles in this condition, but not the Jews, right? So let's think about this for a minute. The Gentile Christians have been told that only those that were united with the Jewish people under the law by participating in circumcision could then participate in the freedom from, that they got from God as His offspring, you know, the, are the same as the people of Israel. And God had called the people of Israel His Son. And we have God speaking to Moses back in Exodus 4, verses 22 and 23, it says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If he refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So what's happening here? So Paul is clarifying this condition of the Jewish people under the law. So this is actually a more positive image than we might think. Because what, what's going on here is even the wealthiest of homes and the, the sons who were loved by their fathers and were heirs of the estate go through this period of supervision, right? They, they would be absolutely normal for a young child or an heir of the estate to go through this period of supervision before they come of age. So in actuality obedience to their guardians is evidence of their love for the Father. Remember back this epidemic of circumcision that was going on that prompted Paul to write this letter? The Gentile Christians were being told that they were not true Christians because they didn't keep the law. This illustration makes the point that even the Jewish people the rightful heir to God's promises to Abraham experienced a certain kind of slavery for a period of time. You move into the next verse in verse 3 of chapter 4. We read, In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. See, the pagan Gentiles were not enslaved to the Mosaic law, and the Jews were not enslaved to pagan idolatry. But the types of slavery were the same in one respect. Both the Jews and Gentiles were enslaved to something other than their immediate knowledge of God. Paul is emphasizing how even Jews who were caught in this universal condition of slavery and whether Jew or Gentile, were all completely dependent upon the liberating grace of God. And then we see the work of the Son. In verses 4 and 5, we read, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. When the time has fully come, what, ha- 
what happens for us? God sent forth His Son. It is in His Son who makes us come of age. And how does He do that? In verse 4, we have this simple statement that is the essence of the gospel story itself. The incarnation of the birth of Christ, His perfect life to obedience under the law, and His redemptive death on the cross. God sent, we look closely at the placement of this text. It's before the incarnation of the pre-existent Son that was sent by God to set the slaves free and make them children of God. And then He's born of a woman, the incarnation of the full humanity of Jesus. And born under the law to experience the curse of the law against all those who fail to observe all the law requires. He was subject to the temptations, the suffering, the loneliness, and finally, on the cross, God forsook Jesus and He experienced death. Death for all of us. And then verse 5, we see Jesus pays this full price of the law. He completely fulfills all that the law demands of us, and He frees us from it. And for what purpose? Literally, through Christ, we receive the sonship. This is the legal term of sonship. We become heirs of God. At the moment of adoption, Jesus procures for us the full rights of sons, the same rights that Christ has. You know, so often we think of our salvation in terms of this first thing He did for us, but we don't think about the second. The first thing He did for us was transfer from us our sins. But the second thing He does for us is He transfers to us all the Son's rights and privileges. It is not like receiving a pardon or a release from death row from prison and finally being free. It's much more than that. You know, we're not left alone and put out into the world and left to make our own way by our own efforts. As children of God adopted sons, we discover that Jesus has taken us off death row, and then He's hung the equivalent to a Congressional Medal of Honor around our neck, and we're welcomed back as heroes. We must always remember this, that our inheritance was not a prize that was won, but it's a gift from Christ. We see the work of the Spirit coming. In verse 6, we read, And because you are sons, God sent, his, sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. See, now that we are sons of God, He sends the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. And the Spirit enables us to have that subjective experience with this deep and profound connection 
And it's expressed in this crying out, Abba, Father. You know, Abba is actually an Aramaic word, and it means much more than Father. It's, it's a term of endearment. It, it's more like than in, in English to crying out Papa or Daddy. And it's this connection that we have with God. This is what it means to be Christian. We're adopted by God. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, praying in no longer in mechanical or former ways, but filled with a personal freedom that a child has with his or her parents. In verse 7, Paul tells us once again who we are as believers. He says, So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. The most astonishing thing about sonship is that God now treats us as if we've done everything that Jesus has done. We have the same standing before God. When God looks at us, He sees His sons, and all that God promised, we enjoy as His adopted sons. You know, as I said earlier, We've been taken out of the sin family of which we were born, and Christ has washed us and cleansed us, and He's given us this new spirit and made us heirs of God. And with joint heirs with Christ, as adopted sons of God the Father. As we enter into another week, there's one last thing that I would like you to take with you this evening. And that is, is that you should know at the exact moment you were created, you were the only thing on God's mind. That God loves you, and He desires for you to be adopted as His Son, inheriting all that Jesus has inherited. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word, Lord. We... Uh, we thank you for, for sending your son to pay a price that we, we just couldn't pay. To restore our relationship to you, Lord, through our faith in him. Father, forgive us for where we fall short. We know that you sent your son to wash us and cleanse us so that we would enjoy adoption as sons into your kingdom, Lord. We thank you. We love you. We come to you in Jesus' mighty name. God bless each and every one of you. Amen.